0: Hello, hello, hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Sound of the Kootenays. Coming at you from one of the most beautiful places you will ever find on this earth. And one of the most creative, I dare to imagine. This episode is going to be really fun.
1: I've got a really fascinating conversation with Craig Korth. And I looked in the bargain finder and under Musicians Wanted, and it said, Wanted banjo player for bluegrass band. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe there's somebody wants a banjo player. He's a mainstay in the Canadian
0: bluegrass circles. He's also a luthier, a broadcaster,
1: and a really fascinating guy. Well, you, you know, you don't get that good because y- you want to get famous. You get that good because you love music. And it looks
0: like this is just going to be part one of my conversation with Craig. I'll tell you a little bit more about that a little bit later. And it is the season of pop culture and entertainment industry awards shows. And of course, the Kootenai Music Awards are surely the most anticipated and coveted. This year's awards are going to be given out at the Spirit Bar in Nelson on March 23rd. And there's 10 different trophies up for grabs this year. In the categories for best songs, we have Roots... Rock, Pop, and Rhythm and Blues. In the category for Best Artists, we have Electronic Producer, Electronic DJ, Jam Band, and Hip-Hop Artist. And the People's Choice Awards for Artist of the Year and Best Music Video. So, of course, we're going to dive back a little bit into the past winners of the Kootenai Music Awards and play some music from some of those folks. And we're also in full swing in the CBC Searchlight competition this year. All across Canada, we are looking at all different genres of music being put up to be declared the winner of the 2019 Searchlight competition. And we've got some representation from the Kootenays in that as well. So we're going to check that out. Now, without further ado... I say, let's get this show on the road. Since 2013, CBC Music has launched a countrywide competition to find Canada's best unsigned talent. In that first year, most Kootenai residents remember that there was a young band from Cranbrook who rolled all the way to the finals. That band was the good old Goats. This year, the field of entries has now been narrowed to the top 100, and within it is a Nelson native named Charlie P.S. She now calls the thriving metropolis of Vancouver home, and early in 2018 she released her debut EP called Little Miss Dysfunctional. That, too, is the name of the song that she's entered into the Searchlight competition, and you can vote for it by going to CBC cbcmusicsearchlight.ca.
2: This is it, you've got to go. Pack your bags and hit the... Believe what you said yesterday And now you to be But baby, that's the truth. And you're running around. I like can think nothing bad will ever happen to you. Your room is the worst. Trying to figure you out. And I don't know what to do. Little Miss no, Giving up on you.
0: Charlie P.S. Nelson native, now living in Vancouver. She's in the. CBC Searchlight Competition's Top 100. Go onto their website, cast your vote, and if by chance I've overlooked any other Kootenai-based artists in that Top 100, please let me know. I would be more than happy to feature them uh, coming up next month. Now, speaking of future shows, I mentioned in the intro that the Kootenay Music Awards are coming up. They will be held in Nelson at the Spirit Bar on March the 23rd, that's a Saturday, and I'm planning on attending. I'll have my recorder in hand, and hopefully I can catch up with some of the winners, some of the other nominees, and some other people in the music industry, just to catch their thoughts on that particular evening. In the meantime, though, I thought we would back up a little bit and play some tracks from some past Kootenai Music Award winners. So here now is a track from 2017's winner of Artist of the Year... Best Electronic Producer and Song of the Year. This is a brand new song released on January 19th called Wood for the Trees by a duo named Moontrix.
3: Wasn't sound. It up. Just another day down. Just another day down. And I don't mess around. And in the rest hardwood was cut too damn deep yet I can't see I can't see the wood for the trees it's never easy
0: a big fan of mixing acoustic music with electronic music. I love the dichotomy of the two worlds coming together and all of the interesting textures and sounds that it makes, and Moon Tricks does a fantastic job of this. I encourage you to check out the links in the show notes, and by all means, please support them, and it's really great to see new music coming out from them. I look forward to a lot more in the future. I'm going to stick with the Kootenai Music Awards here. I'd like to share with you a song that I found after listening to a few of his tracks. This is Dawson Rutledge. He was last year's winner of Artist of the Year, deservedly, of course. And this song comes off of his album entitled Monsters, released in 2017. This song is called Thief of a Lover.
4: Where have you gone? Fled your warm house before the dawn Fall on temptation down the door And made it hard to miss you anymore Found you alone, white as could be mistakes you were making you couldn't see she stole you away and steered you wrong oh go home now you've been gone for so long well you lost your tongue in the mouth of an icy stream regretting the days you dared to dream so many paths you could have choked How many doors are permanently closed You betrayed those who called you brother All for petty lies in the thief of a lover I hope her love was worth it Cause you lost your spirit, I'll admit Never again will you taste the love Of a genuine girl of God above The devil has your persuadable soul Cause you thought a woman would make you whole Well you had so much left to learn And now you're trapped in constant yearning you lost your tongue in the mouth of an icy stream Regretting the days you dared to dream So many paths you could have chosen. Now many doors are permanently closed You betrayed those who called you brother All for petty lies in the thief of a lover Release me
0: Your tongue in the mouth of an icy stream Regretting the days You dared to dream Oh so many paths You could have chose Now many doors are permanently Closed You betrayed those who called you brother All for petty lies And the thief of a lover Hmm. So good I'm so impressed with Dawson Rutledge I wish I would have picked up on you earlier But I'm better late than never And I have to say that uh, in so many different instances, good things come to those who wait. Um, Just like this podcast, it may not be coming out on the day that I was hoping to get it out, but it does come out. And it's always, to me, worth a little bit of the wait. Because sometimes things happen in the production of this show that uh, if I rush or if I try too hard to get things done by a certain date they never would have happened. And the shows seem to turn out better if I can just breathe and allow things to unfold in their natural selection. Um, And that can be said for finding music when it comes to you. You don't have to find it before it's big. You don't have to go to it while it's big. You could come to it years later and discover it and, and have meaning in your life. So more great things about music and the gift of patience in life. And also on the topic of patience. Some people might be wondering, what happened to the segment, all about sincerity sound? Well, I can tell you that right now, I believe there is an international artist, a Zydeco reggae artist in there, that's doing a bunch of recording of uh, a follow-up to another album that they had done recently in the Slocan Valley. And other artists are putting their finishing touches onto their albums and getting them prepared for release. Other people are preparing their songs and getting ready to head into the studio. And, of course, with a little bit of patience, that music will start to see the light of day and trickle into your ears and give you that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling and hopefully make your toes tap, get you dancing, or or just make you feel great. I certainly want to extend a big thank you to Barry Jones and Sincerity Sound for your ongoing support of the sound of the kootenays and i am more than happy to continue to get the word out about sincerity sound as well it's a great thing you're doing there and there's great music coming as there always is from the kootenays so thanks barry Next up, if you're a fan of Canadian bluegrass music, you'll recognize this name right away. This is Craig Korth, and I'm playing a song right now from an album of his called Bankview that came out in 2002. This song is called Burnt. I felt that this was an appropriate song to kick things off with some ripping banjo music from one of Canada's premier ripping banjoists and multi-instrumentalists. Craig lives in Nelson, and we caught up together at his house to talk about bluegrass and radio and festivals and music and instruments and many other things. We talked so much, in fact, that I realized that this is probably a two-part interview. And so I want to present to you now part one of my interview with Craig Korth. So much for coming on the podcast, and I appreciate you having me into your home. Oh well, it's great to have you here, Alan. Thanks a lot for asking. All right. Um, so, Craig, you and I have known each other um, not super well, but uh, have known who each other were, I guess, for quite a number of years. Yeah, a long time. We met in Alberta. Yeah. Um, back in the the CKUA days, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think it was your bluegrass show on CKUA that uh, brought my attention to you and, and your talents as a uh, musician and broadcaster what was the name
1: of that show again it was called fire on the mountain that was it that's yeah right. yeah it was really fun i did it for about seven years mm-hmm. and uh I, yeah i loved it i really enjoyed you know having a radio show i had no radio experience but um, brian dunsmore who was the program director at the time um came to see a see me play i was in a bluegrass band called jerusalem ridge and mm-hmm. um i love telling stories on stage and everything and uh David Ward, who had the show for years, it was called the Bluegrass State of Mind, right. was leaving and and Brian phoned me one day and said, hey, do you want to be the new uh, Bluegrass guy on CKUA? And I'm like, whoa, that came out of left field. And I just said, sure, let's go for it. And uh, it was pretty funny because I, I was in Calgary at the time and um, in the Jack Singer Hall, they have a studio and people can actually, while well, they're Going to a concert, they can see in through the window into the studio and watch the people at night talking Mm -hmm. and stuff. So it was a Sunday afternoon, and there was like an afternoon matinee. And Brian drove down from Calgary, and he's like, "Okay, push push this button. Okay, now slide this fader and do this and do that." And then he said, "Okay, I got to go. Bye." (laughs) And that was it. That was my training. (laughs) And and then I was flying by the seat of my pants and sweating, and everybody's watching through the window, and it was pretty. You know, it was a it was a steep learning curve, but a ton of fun. Now, were you pre-recording those shows for air at, a, at another time or were you broadcasting live? Half and half. Yeah. Yeah. It just depended on, um, you know, what was happening with me that week if I had time to actually show up in the studio. It was at Thursday at 6 p.m. for a long time and then it was Sunday at noon. So it depended if I was, you know, playing music or was somewhere. I'd, lo- I'd rather do it live. I liked it better. Yeah? Yeah. Run the risk of... Pressing the wrong oh, yeah. button or missing a cue or... Well, it's real then, you know. Sure. I like things that are real. It doesn't have to be perfectly polished for me. Well, and that was CKUA in general.
0: It was, yeah. it was a real radio station that played real music with real people talking about... Real experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And life. I, I think I've drawn a lot from that because that was all I listened to, you know, when I was working and living in, in Calgary, um, and I appreciated so much to hear more than just the song and the title. Oh, you know, yeah. Some sort of background or context of what was going on or, or yeah. story around the song or something like that. Sure. Uh, it just brought so much more to the experience of listening to the radio.
1: Oh, yeah. And I used to tell jokes, too. Like Right. I You know, not too many people tell jokes on the radio, but my mom was pretty funny and was a good joke teller, so I grew up. Um, you know, being around jokes. So I used to start off with like three quick lines and, mm-hmm. and uh, people said that even if they couldn't listen to the radio, they waited for the intro. Cause I'd say, you know, remember everything in moderation, including moderation, I <laughs> you know, just had one liners and told some jokes. It, it was fun. And people seemed to love that. You know, yeah. I, 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 at first when I started that radio show, I'm like, what do I do? How do I do this? And then I thought, well, what do I like? What do I personally like? I like to hear stories. I like to hear some jokes. I like to hear, you know, background information and songs. And so I just did what I thought I would want to hear if I was listening to a radio show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were, you were living in Calgary at that time. Is that right? Yeah, I, I was. And then we moved here to Nelson and I did the show for another three years. So I did it for four years when I was in Calgary and three years here.
0: Right. And I remembered hearing about that and it, there was sort of this, oh, he's moved to Nelson. And, and that intrigued me about, you know, what's what's going on in Nelson? And little did I know that we were, our our sights would be pointed in this direction yeah, a few years later. Go.
1: Isn't that funny? And yeah. you ended up here too. Yeah. What year did you move here? Uh, 2008. Oh, okay. So you were a year ahead of us. Oh, yeah. You were here in 2009. Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so living in Calgary before that, what was, um, what was life pre-CKUA? So you had Jerusalem
1: Ridge and um, maybe we'll go all the way back. Well, that's a long way back. I'm 56. (laughs) Okay. And uh, I started playing music at, I was 12 years old in grade six in the fall. I remember the fall of 1974. I came home and my mom was flipping through the yellow pages uh, looking for a vacuum cleaner repair and somehow ended up at the house of banjo. And... Banjo at the time was on the air a lot because the Beverly Hillbillies were on TV mm-hmm. and around 1969, I think it was, the Bonnie and Clyde, the movie that Warren Beatty made, had the getaway song when they were robbing the banks was uh, Foggy Mountain Breakdown, written by Earl Scruggs and Flatten and Scruggs performed that. And then there was Deliverance, the movie with uh, Burt Reynolds, who just passed away. Right. And uh, that was Dueling Banjos, which was a gigantic hit. So both... I think all three of those songs were on the pop charts. Hmm. You know, bluegrass doesn't get on the pop charts very often, but there was lots of banjo and uh, my mom loved it. So I came home from school one afternoon and she said, Hey, do you want to learn how to play the banjo? And I'm like, no, yeah, okay. Like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. And so we went down and listened to it. And um, I thought, yeah, that's a cool sounding instrument. And uh, it was at uh, Myers Music in Edmonton, but at the time it was called the House of Banjo. And I ended up like took one lesson and I went home at night and I fell asleep with it on my stomach while I was laying in bed because I couldn't put it down. I loved it so much. Mm. And that was forty forty five 45 years ago. Right. Right. So 12 years old, you pick up the banjo and, uh,
0: was that your core instrument for yeah. a long time?
1: Well, my sister took guitar lessons at the same time, but she was two and a half years older than me
5: mm.
1: and she had found boys by that time. <laughs> and, um, I still thought girls had fleas and everything and, uh, I didn't want anything to do with them. So I... Her guitar laid around a lot. I didn't take any lessons on guitar, but I, you know, you can only, I practice like five hours a day. I come home at lunch, get up early in the morning, after school, after dinner, before I went to bed, I just practiced like crazy. But I got, you know, you get burnt out and then my sister's guitars laying around. So I started playing her guitar. And, uh, so I did that for a few years, but then when I was about 15, I was in high school and I dated this really great gal named Christina Gerhanchuk, who was a drummer and I always loved the drums. Mm. And so she showed me some stuff on the drums. So I bought myself a cheap drum set for 30 bucks and started to play. And then about six months later, my cousin, who was a few years older than me, phoned and said that their drummer quit in their dance band and uh, they needed a drummer. And I was 16. I'd only been playing for six months and they played weddings and banquets and they were based in Pinocchio. And so they went out from there like Stetler and all these little towns and and so I joined that band and played all through high school. I played uh, dances on drums.
0: And you were living in Edmonton at that time? Yeah.
1: Right. Born and raised in yeah. Edmonton? Yeah. Yeah. And my mother was born in Edmonton and my dad was born just outside Edmonton.
0: Hmm.
1: And my great grandparents came to Edmonton in 1924. So it's a long time Edmonton family. Yeah. Yeah. It was great though. The music scene in Edmonton's amazing. I remember that. I
0: remember it having a really rich music scene, lots of different types of music and and lots
1: of venues to play at, at least back then. Are they still? I don't know. I I moved away in 98. But, you know, it's so funny. When I moved to Calgary, people said, oh, you you moved here from Edmonton." Like deadmonton Edmonton has like the the best folk festival in all of Canada, like the biggest folk festival, all of the different you know the the ballet, the symphony, everything was thriving then mm-hmm. it was a very culturally rich place. there was tons of musicians there, it wasn't dead at all, it was the opposite, yeah, yeah, interesting those community rivalries that kind of <laughs> yeah. develop yeah, if you're not a hockey fan it means nothing really. right i mean that's what it is yeah. The oilers and the flames like who
0: cares there's no competition between the bands or the artists or anything no. between those communities
1: no way no no very supportive yeah i i there was a band called junior gone wild it was like a punk band mm. and one day i got a phone call from them and uh they asked me to come in And play banjo On one of their songs So I played Actually banjo On a song called Raisins by Junior Gone Wild It was just, it was just so great that The whole band Was in there Everybody's in their Leather jackets And they looked like The Ramones And I'm in mean, there With my five string banjo Playing a lot To this <laughs> punk tune It was pretty fun So anyway, that's uh, Edmonton. I found it to be like amazing. Just lots of great musicians, lots of music going on everywhere. Mm-hmm. What took you from Edmonton to Calgary then? Well, I, I got married. I married um, Julie Kerr, who was born in Calgary, and uh, she was from Calgary. And my family was, um, you know, sort of everybody gone to the wind. And Julie's family was really tight and close in the same neighborhood in Calgary, down in Sunnyside. So, And we were planning on having a family So I moved down there, but, uh, yeah, I I lived in Edmonton for 35 years. I liked it. Yeah. Except for the cold. Holy crap. That is one cold city. Yeah. Long winters, long winter, long, sunny winters though. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Calgary the same. Yeah. Yeah. You have those three weeks
0: of minus 30 or, or lower. Yeah. But at least the sun was shining.
1: Yeah. But I don't know now after being in Nelson where you get like two months of dark, but it hovers around zero. I'll take that. The one thing that was great about Edmonton was, um, well, there was not very much bluegrass. That's the thing. And I was playing banjo. So I sat in my basement. I played in a little band called Gopher Broke, like G-O-P-H-E-R. Yeah. And um, it was fun, but we just sort of played at bluegrass. I was pretty young. But then there was uh, uh, some guys, they had a radio show. I think it was on, um, what was that? CFCW, the country station? Mm. They had a bluegrass show and they would interview like Kenny Baker and all these great old bluegrass artists and they started a band and I was 19 and it was first of all it was called Free Beer and Chicken and people would come out to see us play and they're like where's the Free Beer and Chicken <laughs> and so we ended up changing the name to the River City Ramblers mm. and we did a tour in 1981 that was the, my first like bluegrass tour. And uh, we played the Black Falls Bluegrass Festival, the Eventon Folk Festival, the second year of the Eventon Folk Festival. We opened it up on the Friday night. Neat. I have some pictures of our band there. It was just, it was amazing. And um, and I really enjoyed it. But for some reason, that band didn't last very long, just like maybe a year and a half. And then I wasn't in a bluegrass band for till 1988. I went down to Telluride, Colorado. Mm-hmm. To the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, which is an amazing festival. And it's not just bluegrass. It's kind of a wide-ranging, wide-open acoustic music festival. But Bela Fleck was in um, Newgrass Revival at the time, who's you know considered the best banjo player in the world. Yeah. And he was pretty young at the time, maybe 30. I think I was 26. And he was teaching a week-long workshop. And it's the only one he ever did. And oh, wow. I just happened to read it in Fretz Magazine. And I went down and I took it. And the cool thing about going to Telluride was there were bands from everywhere that came to go to the bluegrass festival, like Colorado and Washington state and you name it. They were from Wyoming and they would jam every night in the campground where I was staying. So I jammed every night with them and I was like, really um, renewed my interest in being in a bluegrass band. Mm -hmm. And I came back to Edmonton and I looked in the bargain finder and under musicians wanted and it said wanted banjo player for bluegrass band. I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe there's somebody wants a blue banjo player. So I phoned them up and they said, Oh, yeah, we got Terry Knutson in the band last week while I was away. Oh, The only bluegrass band in Edmonton. And so, you know, I believe in the whole visualizing things. I, I didn't even realize I was doing it until a few years ago. But every night I go to sleep, I could see myself playing in that band. and standing on stage with those guys and everything. And I go watch them play at the venues and stuff. And then like three months later, I got a phone call from Marty O'Byrne. And he said... Terry Knutson got transferred to Forsberg. We need you. We need you on banjo. And so I ended up in that band and (laughs) it just manifested somehow. And, and so that was really when things started for me. Right. And then, uh, so that was, that was prior to moving to
0: Calgary as well. Oh yeah.
1: Prior. Yeah. That was in 1988. Oh yeah. I moved 10 years later to Calgary. Yeah. And then, uh, we went on tour for a year and like we went touring around and playing and stuff, but, um, there was a really great mandolin player named Bill Lopushinsky, who uh, was from north of Edmonton, uh, not Westlock. I don't know. Just, you know, not too far away, but he was not in a band and he could play mandolin and sing as high as Bill Monroe, like a really mm. talented guy. He played mandolin, banjo, guitar, great tenor singer. And I wanted to play in a band with him because we needed that talent. Like, and one of the other guys in the band didn't want it, didn't want, to get him in the band, I think they felt threatened by him. Mm-hmm. So I went behind that guy's back and asked everybody else at the end of the summer, let's quit this band and start our own band. <laughs> and so that's what I did. Basically we booted the guy out of his own band. That's and, my worst nightmare. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> well, but every time I approached him about getting this guy in the band, he's like, nope, nope, nope. We just walk away. And, right. and I didn't like that. I mean, it, it, and what happened was, we ended up doing a sound reinforcement class for uh, Grant McEwen college. They wanted to mic an acoustic band. Like we don't no pickups on our instruments, no electric instruments, so it's all mic'd. Yeah. So they're used to doing rock bands and stuff, and so we went in and did that. And the fellow that we ended up booting out of the band, he, uh, well, not we didn't boot him out. We just basically quit the band and started our own. Right. But what happened was uh, he couldn't make it, so we got this other guy, Bill. And you know, it's like lightning hits you when you there was four of us, and it just instantly clicked like clicked like crazy and i knew that was the thing to do and so at the end of the summer we um we did that we started our own band called jerusalem ridge and then um six months later this is 1989 or so we made a cassette you know because at that time cds had only been in for about six years and they were super expensive to make Mm -hmm. and we just couldn't afford it and um so we made cassettes which was sort of the standard thing to do at the time And we sent it around and I think we got like eight festivals the next summer that wanted our band. The cassette turned out to be really good, you know, just for a band. We recorded live off the floor, no overdubs, but it was just, just one of those things where it all worked perfectly. You know, everything, everybody knew what they were doing and it all just gelled. Yeah. And then it took off from there and it just, we played like 40 dates a year and we all had full-time jobs Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah it was it was wonderful we got interviewed twice by peter zosky on national cbc oh, wow. radio and we did tom jackson's here on carol which is a you know a nationally broadcast tv show and for christmas we did that a couple times we did a whole bunch of stuff really fun stuff like that mm-hmm. and uh yeah we played for a bunch of years played you know to so one year we did 10 festivals in the summer it was just constantly sometimes three in a weekend how far would you travel with that band oh my god like we we had a chev suburban that didn't have a radio in it and it was our band vehicles we bought it just for the band it was a 1981 chev we paid 1100 dollars for it we drove it for 10 years and sold it for 700 we had it didn't cost us anything and one day i was actually on jasper avenue in edmonton and i saw our suburban go by and this lady who raised llamas bought it from us And there was a llama in the back of our (laughs) Suburban. I actually thought, I bet it smells better in there than when we were in it. But um, uh, we we would get in our Suburban and we would drive to Smithers from Edmonton Mm. and play the Smithers Bluegrass Festival, drive back, work all week, get in the car and drive to the Winnipeg Folk Festival and play that. Right. And then come back and then drive to Chilliwack to play the Chilliwack Bluegrass Festival and drive. You know, we just, when you live in Edmonton, you've just got to drive and drive and drive to play, you know. Yeah. So we would go, but we never really went past Ontario. Mm-hmm. We just stayed from Ontario West. Yeah. Not as much demand that far? Well, you know, when you have a full-time job, it's very difficult for people. And people had kids and everything. I didn't right. have kids at the time. But it's hard for people to get away long enough to go on a tour. Because if you go that far, if you go to Quebec or New Brunswick or wherever, you, you know, usually you've got to, to make it viable to pay for all those expensive plane tickets and everything. You've got to play quite a few shows. Yeah. And we just trying to get the time to do that yeah. was difficult right was there a lot of recording with that band well i think we made six cds mm-hmm. the first our first cassette actually won um with the alberta recording industry association we, we won like roots album of the year or something like that right yeah we we recorded a bunch we tried to record like every two years or so and uh
5: yeah it, and and you know, it
1: was really at a good time. Like I remember, in the early '90s, we we would go play the we played the Blueberry Bluegrass Festival in Edmonton. We played there thirteen years in a row, mm-hmm. like every year. And one year, we made a CD just before the festival, and we sold eight thousand dollars worth of CDs in two days. Wow, it was nutty. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It was a fun band, though. You know, it was really fun. The the musicians were really good, but we put on a show, too. That was the other thing, you know. Mm -hmm. If you just stand up there and play songs, it's kind of like just plugging in a jukebox. But if you actually have a show where you tease each other and, you know, tease the audience a bit and tell some jokes, play some tunes, have a couple of skits or whatever that you do, people love it. For sure.
0: And it would always be changing.
1: Yeah, totally. It was all improvised. We just sort of did whatever we felt like. One time I was playing... um, Like uh, Banjo and Bill Lobosinski, the mandolin player, he's really dry, really funny, but quiet and dry. But when he said something, they were good zingers. And he was playing, we were playing Rawhide, a real fast instrumental tune. And we always, at that time, we were wearing shirts and ties. So I took his tie and I pulled it up through his glasses so he couldn't see to play. And and then he, he went over and I forget, he did something to me. But then I took a piece of duct tape that was sitting down on the floor beside me and I pulled the duct tape off and I put it on his glasses. <laughs> and he's playing his solo really fast. And then I'm playing my solo and all of a sudden he pulled the tape off of his glasses and went whack right on the strings of my banter and all you could hear was tick tick. tick, tick, tick. <laughs> it was just fun, you know. I, I loved it. I i I had a really great time playing with those guys. Nice. And we ended up finishing up um as a band around two thousand and 6 or 7 we 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 developed a symphony and bluegrass show and went across western canada playing bluegrass with symphonies wow it was really fun yeah there's a good video on somebody took a video from youtube it's on youtube of we did dueling banjos and it was me and you know cuz it's a banjo song but i was the banjo player but the whole band we duelled the symphony there was 55 people in the calgary philharmonic and um we 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 rearranged it so that, you know, it's like it starts off just playing the song and then it just kind of goes a little bit further and Then the symphony goes a little bit further. And then all of a sudden I start playing Stairway to Heaven and they play Stairway to Heaven. And then we played Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It was just crazy, but it's so much fun.
0: You mentioned going down and uh, and spending some time with Bela Fleck. Yeah. Uh, early on. Yeah. Now, you you developed a bit of a relationship with him ongoing. Is that correct?
1: Well, yeah. He came to Edmonton um, with Newgrass Revival not long after that, and he gave me and my girlfriend at the time backstage passes for to play you know when he was playing they were opening for ricky van shelton and Mm. i would not have wanted to be ricky van shelton (laughs) i mean he's a good he's a good artist and you know great singer and everything but man newgrass revival was sam bush and and john cowan singing lead and uh pat flynn on guitar and bela on banjo holy smokes that would have been an incredible incredibly hard thing to to follow and they were the opening act and even in the in the journal they're like what were they thinking (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so, yeah, I know I had seen him quite a bit. I haven't, I, I went, uh, he came through when I, I, I think it was around 2002. I released a solo album. Mm-hmm. I moved to Calgary, but I went up to Edmonton to, uh, be interviewed on, on, uh, CKUA about it. And I had my banjo with me and, um, I went to see Bayless. Uh, they, uh, um, what's that band's name of his B- bale of fleck and the fleck tones right they came and he invited me backstage at the jubilee auditorium which was really cool yeah and uh, it was you know just had a wonderful time he's a lovely guy just really really nice person and really smart you know some people just are smart mm-hmm. i think
0: that applies to that whole band oh yeah yeah for I had, sure i um working with the jazz fest in caslow oh yeah i met jeff coffin last year oh yeah and uh yeah, really, really nice guy, easy to talk to, and sure. you know he's he's obviously got some large stadiums that he's playing with Dave Matthews Band. Yeah, uh, as a part of that project, oh, is he in,
1: is he with them now?
0: Yeah, after their saxophone player passed away in 2008, oh, he yeah. was called as a temporary fill in for the the remainder, and they offered him the gig. So oh yeah, he's and
1: great, I isn't he? Yeah, yeah.
0: super innovative and you know lots of energy and great
1: performer. You know, I've been lucky enough over the years to meet some wonderful, like really wonderful musicians that are just heads and tails above everybody else. And it seems like the better you get, the nicer you get. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like people in the mid-level who are kind of clawing their way up or whatever, That sometimes that can be challenging to be around. Yeah. But man, I, I met some incredible people that have just been so friendly and so nice. You know, it seems like as you get better, you get nicer. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that doesn't always... You know, there are some divas out there. That's for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a it's a good uh, excuse to practice more. Yeah, really. Work on your personal skills. Yeah. I did a... I probably told you about it before, but I also did a workshop out on Gabriola Island, a three-day workshop with Victor Wooten. Oh, did you really? from the Flecktones, Yeah. Um, and there... I mean, there's another person who is in, innovative in, in music uh, as a player, but also... In his teachings of music, I don't know if you've read his. book. I have, yeah. Isn't it great? Yeah, and that's the music this, lesson. Yeah, and yeah. this whole workshop was sort of built around the story and the concepts in the book. Oh yeah. Um, but you're sitting there like you and I talking about it, and he's. It, it, it was like every word or every sentence that he spoke was worth writing down. I'm glad I had my recorder because I go back to it and listen what to it. What a great experience often. you had with it. It was really great. Yeah. Sat oh. down. I was. Uh, I was there early. And, uh, was in the cafeteria having lunch by myself and in, he came and grabbed some food and asked if he could sit down (laughs) with table for two. And we just started chatting and
1: such a great story. I mean, it's it's nice to hear that, you know, people that like Victor Wooten are that down to earth and nice. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you don't get that good because you want to get famous. You get that good because you love music. Mm -hmm. And when you're around other people who love music, of course that comes out. Yeah.
0: So then you, you live in Calgary and you've, uh, that's when you brought out your, uh,
1: your solo album. Yeah. yeah. That was bank Is that? Yeah, it was I remember yeah. Right. Yeah. 2002. I, I recorded it. I was just sort of, I was still in Jerusalem Ridge, but I was writing a bunch of music that didn't really fit in a bluegrass band. Mm-hmm. And I met my wife, Julie, um, a couple of years before, and she had a bunch of really great songs and that's sort of how we. You know got interested in each other because we were both like writing songs and and she actually had put a uh, an ad in the calgary binder bargain finder looking for a banjo player <laughs> and it was i didn't answer that ad, but she got one <laughs> she married. we've been married almost twenty years yeah but um the fact that uh we were both like into writing original tunes and everything uh it it was really great so what happened was she's she wanted she had enough material to do an album and i had enough material to do an album so we recorded them both at the same time Hmm. and um we we had our daughter ella who's 18 now she was born in 2000 in 2000 so she was two years old when we were recording Hmm. and our other daughter amy was there in the studio but she was still inside julie right and so julie was having a hard time breathing because there wasn't enough room she was you know eight months pregnant or something oh wow trying to you know, get her diaphragm to expand enough to sing. and she, But she did it and, and made a really great album. But what we did was we recorded them both at the same time. And so we were hiring musicians to come in, got a really nice studio in Calgary called the Night Deposit Studio. Yeah. And uh, it was Andre Lucassi who was the engineer. And uh, the John Reichman's guitar player, Jim Nunnally, co-produced it with me. I hadn't really produced an album before, but in Jerusalem Ridge we, we produced our own albums. Mm-hmm. And so I had an idea of what to do, but I was so glad to have Jim who has his own recording studio in the, just outside of San Francisco and lots of experience recording acoustic music. It was really helpful to have him help. And then, you know, we had John Reichman and the Birds in, except for their banjo player. Cause I played banjo mm-hmm. and a bunch of other musicians, really great musicians. Billy Cousill sang a duet. I can give you that song Jackson. Oh yeah. With Julie. And uh, Alison Brock told me, too, who has a wide cut country on um, CKUA, she said she likes that version better than Johnny Cash's version. And, you know, Billy Cowsell was a big star in the sixties in the Cowsills and he was in Calgary at the time and I was in a trio with Ronnie Hayward and uh, Billy Cowsell. Right. And so when I was making an album he came in and sang a couple songs and uh, it was so nice you just have somebody that could sing like that. You know, he was asked to replace Brian Wilson in the Beach Boys when Brian Wilson had, you know, a mental breakdown and couldn't travel anymore and stuff. Really? They flew him out, yeah. He was a great singer. Yeah. He's just a fantastic singer. Yeah, it was fun playing in a band with a guy like that. I bet. Yeah. He's got lots of stories. Oh, tons of stories. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and he passed that, away. Yeah, he did. He was only 58 or so. But mm. he was, you know, he was addicted to drugs for quite a while mm. and um, got off of them and was clean when I was playing with him. But it had really taken a toll on his body. Sure. And basically, that's what happened. I think it just broke down. Yeah. But he had gotten his act together and he was on the straight and narrow and doing well. Mm-hmm. but then his body just gave out and he was with the uh the codependence in Calgary right. as well yeah. right yeah. yeah i played with ronnie hayward who lives now out in the valley that's right and uh, so it was ronnie and i and billy we played together for about a year and um then after that kind of you know petered out it, he started the codependence in calgary right yeah, so that was pretty fun. That was really fun, actually.
0: Yeah, and great recordings. I yeah. remember hearing a lot of the the codependents were a, oh, a mainstay on CKUA well, for the years so that I was there. Well, they were great.
1: Yeah. yeah. Everybody in that band was such a good musician. Yeah. I yeah. think yeah. somewhere around there's a recording of the three of us playing. But not, there isn't much, you know, with Ronnie and Billy and I, but I wish we would have recorded. Like, But, you know, those things you think, they're so fleeting, you know, they come and go so quickly.
5: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So then we fast forward a little bit, and um, your two daughters and a wife and yourself uh, decide that maybe Calgary's not home anymore,
1: and you're looking at Nelson. What what sparked that decision? Well, we were in uh, Calgary, and we were sending our kids to the Waldorf School, mm-hmm. and we you know we really liked what the Wal- Waldorf School was all about, but it was like above this uh, ski park pascapou or whatever they call that i don't know canada olympic park now or something so it yeah. was up above that yeah and it was a long way from where we lived and we didn't want to move out there because you got to drive into the city all the time to get anything and um we just we are getting tired of living in a big city mm-hmm. and we a few of our friends had moved out here to nelson to that from the waldorf school and said oh you should come check it out so one of our friends rented a house for three months, but they had made up their mind early. And so they had a, a couple of weeks left on the end of their rental period. They said, why don't you just come and stay in the house for two weeks, send your kids to the school. And so um, we did that and fell in love with Nelson. And that's, that was in 2008 and, and in March and we ended up buying the house that we were renting. And uh, yeah, we it was the right thing for us to do. So anyway, yeah, we're happy here. I mean, we love it here. We've been here for 10 and a half years and, you know, I, I could live here the rest of my life and be a happy man. Mm-hmm. How has Nelson influenced your career? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm what you would call a utility man in a band. You know, I played Dobro and mandolin and banjo and guitar. And so a lot of bands would hire me to go on tour with them and, you know, or singers and songwriters. Cause then I can each song, I can play a different instrument on that might fit the song better than just the banjo or just the guitar. Yeah. And so I was. On, I played on the Bill Hilly Band, the Bills from Victoria. I yeah. played on their first album and their second one. But after their first album, I went on tour with them. And we went to uh, Alaska for three weeks. And then we came back for one day. And then I went to Ontario for two weeks. And I came back and uh, my daughter, Ella, who was only two at the time, wouldn't let me pick her up. And I cried. I was so upset, you know, because mm-hmm. my dad was a like, he was a truck driver and he put up metal buildings in the north. I didn't see him for years until at least 10 years. I was 10 years. Old. I don't even remember him from when I was a kid, hardly.
5: Wow. And
1: I didn't want that in my life. So I quit touring and, and I was ready to stay home, which, you know, it was really great. That was the right thing to do. You know, I stayed home while my kids were growing up, but I, but while I was in Calgary, I started another band with my wife, Julie. We had a band called Widowmaker. I'll send you some of the music of that too. Yeah. It was such a great band. We, it was all original. Uh, you know, it was a bluegrass band. And, um, had great players and great songwriters and Julie wrote songs and I co-wrote songs with another guy in the band and um, it made quite a splash. It was a good band and we were still in it when we moved here and Earl Scruggs went on tour with, you know, the Jerry Douglas band and, um, and we got a call from the promoter in Alberta said, do you want to come and open the shows at the Jack Singer hall and at the, uh, the, whatever the Francis Winspear, center in edmonton yeah we were and so we said yeah so i drove back here i was in Selkirk college going to going through the jazz program with the banjo which was really fun oh really yeah and so we drove back to alberta play open for earl scruggs sat backstage with him hung out with jerry douglas it was so fun and came back but it was just too hard to be based in alberta and bc at that time with small kids yeah and so but that was a great band we we, um, we made a CD and, it, it, you know, got great reviews out of um, No Depression magazine. A whole bunch of magazines reviewed it and said it was one of their favorite recordings of the year. Like, it did really well. Yeah. And uh, it was too bad that it didn't, you know, wasn't able to sustain itself when, after we moved away.
0: Right. Just logistics were, was oh, yeah. the, 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 the downfall. you got control. a gig
1: all the time if you want. But, you know, Calgary's eight hours from here. Yeah. you got little kids. They certainly don't want to sit in the car for eight hours. No. And hang around at a venue while you're gigging, or you know, yeah, so it was difficult,
5: yeah, yeah, but I,
1: I really enjoyed that band, tons of fun. Mm-hmm. But how things have changed since I moved here to Nelson? Well, you know, I one of the things that happened was we, you know, for a long time in Canada, we were like the bluegrass band that got hired by all of the festivals, you know, we'd play the Owen Sound Folk Festival, the Ottawa Folk Festival, we'd go to you know, play, play all over the place. We were playing festivals. So it's different. You know, if you play bluegrass, bluegrass is like an oral tradition, you know, like A-U-R-E. Is it U-L? Like you, you play, you you play by ear only. You don't read or anything. So when you're learning songs from people, you're you're playing them, you know, you just, somebody plays for you and you, you play it back until you get the tune. And normally bluegrass musicians play bluegrass, especially at the time I was playing. But then I would be backstage, you know, and I got to meet some amazing, like one time I was in a, I got to jam with John Prine and I got to jam with, um, Long John Baldry. And who's the guy that wrote, um, homegrown tomatoes? Uh, he was a guitar maker from Austin. Um, I know who you mean. I can hear the song. He just passed away a couple of years ago. Anyway, I got in these amazing jam sessions. Guy Clark. Yeah. And, um. So yeah, you would be backstage at Folk Festival and I was the only sort of bluegrass musician. I played banjo and I was different. So I'd get invited to these incredible jams. But a lot of times they would be playing like some old swing tunes and stuff. And I just didn't, I didn't understand any of the theory behind that or anything. So when we were going to these long drives to like the Winnipeg Folk Festival, I would buy a grade one piano theory book, a workbook, and I'd work through it. And then I'd go up to the next level and then I started getting to understand theory a little deeper. And then I would get jazz guitar books and work through them with the banjo. Mm -hmm. And because I played guitar, I could work on guitar first and then figure it out on the banjo. And so I started to get to the point where I could at least read a jazz chart, you know, like I could play an E minor seven flat five in the banjo, which very few people could. Mm. And, um, and then when we were going to move here, I knew about Selkirk college and I knew that they had a jazz program. So I actually um, called them and said I was interested in in going through the music program with the banjo, which nobody had done before. And so Paul Landsberg, who was the guitar teacher, phoned me and wanted to ask me what my experience was with music and everything. And then when he found out, I actually knew enough theory and everything that I wouldn't get lost up there. um, He said, "Okay, let's do it. So I went and I went through full full time for a year Mm -hmm. in 2008 and learned a lot and so that was a big thing that I'd wanted to do for years. And I don't think if we had hadn't moved here, I don't think I would have done that at a college in Calgary or Edmonton or anything, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and, and became friends with the teachers there, you know, played with Mark Spielman and in a band and, you know, it's just been great. And the, because this isn't a bluegrass town so much, there are some bluegrass players here and there's a band called, uh, uh, mountain station and stuff. It, it's, I, but there's a lot else going on because of the college here. And because of the people that attracts, luckily I had gone through that music program and started to get asked by different people to play in town in different kind of bands. I was in a band called Catalani and the crooked corral for a while. where mm-hmm. I played Western swing guitar. Mm-hmm. Love that played in, uh, uh, a, a few bands where I played banjo, but sort of alternative kind of stuff. I played on a recording with a guy named, uh, Jude Davison, and it was like a traveling Mexican circus. So we all got painted up, you know, painted faces and oh, wow. wore costumes. And he wrote all the music, and I played like slide guitar on his album, and some banjo and some guitar. And there was like, nine people in that band, and we played a bunch of shows. And so it it really it sort of expanded m- my whole musical outlook being here, not just sort of relegated as a bluegrass musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and. And then, um, you know, recently I got asked by, uh, I played with Clinton Swanson, who's a wonderful saxophone player in town and can play, you know, other wind instruments as well, but a really great musician, Bessie Wapp, who's, you know, a local Nelson celebrity and cancer yes. and everything. I played with her on a show and Clinton and I got to know each other. And then I had done a few things with Brian Kalbfleisch, who's a great singer, songwriter, and they wanted to start a band with all their favorite Nelson musicians. And the, so I got the call from them and asked if I wanted to join. And I did. And uh, Rob Fahey, who's a, a wonderful bass player, he's got a double master's in bass. He's got a master's in, from the uh, university in jazz and in classical music mm. and has played bluegrass. You know, most of the time, jazz players who play bluegrass are not that good at it. Right. They feel the beat in a different spot than a bluegrass player does. A bluegrass feels the player feels it right at the top of the beat or just slightly ahead of the beat. A jazz player feels it just behind the beat. So what happens the way that I like to explain it is if I feel the beat, like I'm pointing right to the top of my finger. If I feel the beat there, the jazz player feels it behind. Well, I slide backwards so that it's back at the top of the beat again. Then the jazz player pulls it back to play just before the beat. Like he likes to, but I want it on the top. So we keep sliding backwards until the music is going. So slow. <laughs> and so playing with a guy like Rob Fahey, who's, unbelievable as a musician but also understands that about bluegrass is just such a treat mm-hmm. and then graham tracy plays drums in it and he you know came from new york he played in new york for years a great singer great drummer like i've never really played with drums because i've been playing bluegrass all my life there are no drums in bluegrass yeah then i played with graham who just throws his whole being into his drumming and he's great he's like the keith moon of nelson cool and so it's we started a band called the devils you don't and we play everything from motorhead like we do a cover of uh the ace of spades by motorhead but we also do old frank sinatra tunes we do covers of disco tunes we do lots of originals we do i think three or four instrumental originals that i wrote and if i hadn't gone to selkirk college and hadn't taken an interest outside of bluegrass I could never play in a band like that. You know, mm-hmm. we're reading jazz charts for, you know, old swing tunes, uh, old, old um, jazz tunes, and I can play them on the banjo. And, you know, it's very, very lucky that we moved here and I was able to go to such a great college. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's an enviable thing, and I, I, I really respect that you could,
0: at that point in your life and being a family man and stuff, take that time to go and, and do a music program like that. I did the uh, Red Deer College music program, Right out of high school, and you know, I didn't, I didn't take it seriously enough to really get as much out of it as I could have. So, as an adult and as a mature, oh yeah, a, a more mature musician, yeah, um, to go in there with the headspace of yes, this is what I want to learn, and this is how much I'm going to get out of it, yeah, um, must have been so much better.
1: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there. You know, I was 46 at the time. And my instructors were, I was a little older than some of the instructors and just a little bit younger than some of the other ones. And so it was like I was with my peers. (laughs) And I had been playing music professionally for, you know, since I was a teenager and I was 46. So it was like we were speaking the same language, you know, and I ended up, you know, becoming friends with them. And so, yeah, you're right. You know, you probably at 18 learned as much as any 18-year-old could because <laughs> you've got other things on your mind. I had already done all that stuff, and I was not interested in that. All I wanted to do was learn. Yeah. And the, those those people there were there to be, you know, part of that with me. I mean, to guide me along. And so I was able to really dig in, just like you said. I mean, mm-hmm. that, it was a great time to go to school. Probably well, better than any other time.
0: And it must have been just as much a learning experience for them to do it with an instrument that they had never had yeah, in a program like that.
1: Exactly. Well, Paul Landsberg was my um, instrument instructor. Like you, you, you have one person who's, you know, you're assigned to as their student. I went to the harmony classes and other classes that you have, but once a week you meet with your instrument teacher and Paul wouldn't show me how to play the banjo. He'd show me what I needed to learn on the banjo.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: We go over it and then I go home and work on it for a week, come back, and then show him and he's like okay you got most of it but you've only got to change this here and maybe we can try a different approach or whatever so it was you know i wasn't looking for someone to show me how to play the banjo i was looking for to, uh, someone to show me how to understand music more deeply mm-hmm. and that i did get
0: yeah now in terms of um teaching and being a student yes um you also teach uh, yeah. in some capacity at the Um, Nimble Fingers, Bluegrass. Yeah,
1: well, that's the other part, you know, because um, uh, I I started playing banjo at 12. And then I started teaching at the music store when I was 14 that I was taking lessons from because I had progressed quickly because I also had a mother who was a piano player. And she sat with me every night and put the metronome on and pointed to the notes I was supposed to play. I'm like, why am I doing this? You're horrible to me. Yours is the worst person in the world. turns out actually she was the best person in the world. You know, she really helped me. And I progressed quickly and I had the desire to do it. So I started teaching at 14. So I've taught my whole life.
5: Hmm.
1: And then I started teaching at, at, at music camps and stuff. And I taught in Sorrento at the BC bluegrass workshop for years. And, um, really loved it. And I even one, one year, what happened was I taught one week, but I also like to play music. Like I'm a jammer. I'm just a jam monster. I just want to play, play, play. So I would play all night, you know, and teach during the day and go and jam with everybody so that the, the director of the camp hired me for the next week to just be there. And he called me the camp instigator. So for quite a few years, I would go and just, I got hired just to be at the camp because I would get the party going, you know, yeah. not that I was a big drinker or anything. I was just a big partier. Like I wanted to play. Yeah. And so, I mean, what a great job. I, and so then I got hired by the Montana fiddle camp to go down there and do the same thing. And so I would teach one week and then be the camp instigator for the next week. And because I play a bunch of different instruments, different camps would hire me and they would call me a rover.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Some classes need... Uh, you know, a a fiddle class might need a guitar player to play chords behind the fiddle tunes as the instructor is showing, or maybe a dance class needs somebody in their dance band or whatever. So I would get hired by camps to go and do that as well. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I've taught off and on almost my whole life. Right. And uh, loved it and gone to a whole bunch of camps as a student too, and learned from some amazing players.
0: Yeah. This next piece of music is one that I found on YouTube when I searched out Craig Korth and Nimble Fingers. This one is titled Craig Korth and the Nimble Fingers All-Stars, and the song is Elephant Mountain. They recorded the song in true bluegrass fashion around one microphone, and the filmmaking in the video is quite beautiful as well. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. Some very interesting
1: instruments. You collect instruments, is that right? Well, you know, I don't like to think of myself as a collector because I think of a collector as somebody who buys something, acquires it somehow, and then puts it in a case and admires it and shows it off. I feel like I'm a player who <clears throat> is interested in playing the best instruments I can get my hands on. And so, you know, maybe on the outside it looks like I'm a collector. I don't just collect them. I just, I want to play them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I stumbled onto that too, because I started playing guitar when I was 14, no, when I was 12. And so like 1976, when I was 14, I had a man, which is made in Japan, Les Paul copy. So it was like a solid body electric guitar, not very good, but super cheap. And my dad was driving home from work and my, you know, my, my dad wasn't a guitar player or anything, but he heard on the swap shop on CHQT radio that somebody was selling a Fender guitar. And so my dad uh, wrote the number down on his cigarette package while he's driving. And he came home and he said, uh, Hey Craig, I heard there's a guy selling a Fender guitar and um, I've heard of Fender guitars. I think they're pretty good. And I'm like, Oh, okay, well let's go look at it. So we drive over to this guy's house that night. And it was a, it was a pink Paisley Telecaster from 1968. This is 1976. So it's only eight years old. Yeah. But it, came, it, it was that guitar and a Fender Tweed Basement. A tweed, which is kind of a, a brown cloth that they used to cover luggage in in the 50s and stuff. Mm-hmm. They, would, they covered amplifiers in it. And so it turns out that I got the guitar and the amplifier for $250. Wow. Which at the time, though, in 1976, I was teaching banjo lessons for $3 an hour. So $250 was a lot of money. Right. I think my dad at the time was only making about $350 a month as a welder. Hmm. Anyway, it seemed like a fortune. And so I got this amplifier, which was a basement. And I'm like, I don't want a bass amplifier. I want a guitar (laughs) amplifier. And I sold it to my friend for a hundred dollars. So I got this pink Paisley telecaster for $150. And, uh, turns out the 59 tweed basements, the ultimate guitar rock and roll machine. Like it's worth probably $10,000 now, (laughs) but that's okay. I sold it. And, um, but what happened because I had this really wild guitar, which I didn't like, I, I didn't want a pink guitar, but it was played great and sounded great. So I tried to get it refinished. It was $200 to have it refinished. And I said, no, I'm not going to pay that. I only paid 150 for the guitar. So I kept it and I went to the music store in our mall, I didn't even know how to change the strings yet on my guitar. So they changed the string for me. And my English teacher from high school was walking by and saw that guitar. And he's like, hey, like this is 1978. And nobody was into vintage guitars then at all. They weren't that old, you know, they weren't. Like there were only two vintage shops. I think it was Gruen Guitars in Nashville and Mandolin Brothers in New York. And, and the word hadn't spread that they were good. But he, my teacher, somehow his name was Dean McKenzie, had figured out that old guitars were better than new ones. Mm. And he said, that guitar's pretty rare and pretty collectible. I'm like, guitars can be rare and collectible? And he's like, yeah. So I ended up hanging out with him and we became best friends all through school. Mm. He had a 1947 Martin D-18 that's hanging on our wall right now. My wife plays it. Oh, wow. And so the first vintage guitar I even saw was his D-18. And then he gave me a book called uh, American Guitars by Tom Wheeler. It was the first vintage guitar book out. And he said he thought that um, um, guitars were undervalued compared to violin family instruments and that they were one day going to be worth more. And there's some great guitars out there. So I read the book and he said, you should buy every good one you can. And so... That's what I tried to do. I used to get up in the morning. On Thursday morning, the bargain finder would come out in Edmonton. And, you know, Edmonton had all this oil money. Right. So they're musicians. And music was really popular in the 50s and 60s and 40s, you know. And people had the money to buy instruments. So there was always great guitars coming up on the bargain finder. So I found, like, the Shell station on the south side where the first copies got dropped off at 630. So I'd be there at the Shell station at 630. Reading through the musical instruments, and I'd be phoning people at like 20 to 7 waking them up saying, I want to come and buy your L5 or, you know, and, and so I ended up with some incredible instruments. I just kept flipping them, you know, I'd buy something and something better would come along. Like in 1991, I wanted a Gibson super 400, which was Gibson made an arch top guitar. Uh, they, they, they were the people who developed it and everything. And that's what they played in big band music and rockabilly music and everything. The top and back are carved like a violin in an arch and they have F holes instead of a round sound hole. They're very difficult to make, and they're also really rare. They were Their Super 400 in 1934, when it was introduced, was $400. Hmm. And that's in the Depression, when a coal miner in Kentucky made like $100 a year. Wow. So um, anyway, I won a Super 400 so bad that I flew to the Dallas Vintage Guitar Show in 1991 to buy a Super 400. And I I ended up getting one. And, um, came home, like flew all the way to Dallas and like two weeks later in the bargain finder oh. is a super Four Hundred, <laughs> which I still have a 1948 <laughs> super 400. So anyway, it was, all I was trying to do was flip instruments, buy them and sell them until I got what I really wanted, you know, right. that I thought sounded great. I'm always nervous to talk about the value of something because it, it, it sort of shifts away from the fact that it's a fabulous instrument right. to now that it's just a valuable uh, commodity right it goes from being this crazy cool instrument to being this incredibly valuable rare thing that no longer is an instrument that produces a beautiful sound right yeah so my philosophy is just you know find the best instrument i can possibly get and then play the heck out of it
0: Collecting and, and coming into a lot of these instruments, um, you were obviously learning a lot about them along the way. When did you get into building instruments?
1: Well, you know, I, it's funny. I always wanted to, um, in high school even, you know, when, as a teenager, I wanted to make instruments. I was in machine shop in high school and had a great machine shop teacher. My dad had a welding shop in our backyard, but also made almost everything you know, you, you, my dad made a tractor over the winter in our basement that had treads like a tank. Mm-hmm. And he nailed a couple of two by sixes to the stairs and drove it up the stairs, took out the back door and the frame and everything right outside, put a big blade that he made. And he basically, um, in the sixties, we moved to a new neighborhood of like 900 square foot houses with kids everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, a new neighborhood in Edmonton called steel Heights. And he did all of the landscaping, for blocks with this little tractor he made in the basement, like he just made everything. He made me a pedal car when I was a kid uh, that looked like a, a World War II, One biplane, all out of aluminum because he's a tinsmith as well. Mm-hmm. I had this cool—I mean, so so I always wanted to make a guitar. I grew up with makers in my family, and then in 1991, I was in my friend Byron Meyer and Meyer's Music. He brought out Vintage Guitar magazine, and I loved archtop guitars you know, very obscure instrument, but I love them. And so my, my friend put the the issue on the counter and I picked it up and I looked in the classified ads. Cause that's what I always did. I just wanted to see what was for sale and everything. And it said, mm-hmm. Bob Benedetto maker of fine, uh, archtop instruments, ask about archtop making course. And I'm like, you can learn how to make an archtop from somebody. So I, I knew who he was. He was a famous maker at the time. And, uh, I went straight home and I phoned him. He was in uh, East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. And he said, oh yeah, if you send a $200 deposit, you can, uh, for $1,000, you can come build a guitar with me and take it home and I'll teach you how to do it. (laughs) I'm like, whoa. And I thought, you know, this is too good to be true. Like, this is way too good. So what I did was I went right to the bank, got a $200 money order and I FedExed it overnight to him. And I phoned him the next day and he said... uh, wow, you must really want to do this. And I said, I really want to do it. And, uh, he said, well, uh, we'll put your name on the list. We'll, we'll phone you and figure out when you're coming. So I came in October and like two weeks later, I phoned him about something. And he said there were 250 people on the waiting list to take his course. And he decided not to do it anymore. And he would only take the first seven people that send their deposit in. And I was one of them. So I flew down to Pennsylvania in the fall and I made a guitar with Bob Benedetto. And he just was great at showing every, every single trick, everything that he had. And he had made 350 archtops on his own up to that point. Cool. And he was only like 42 at the time or something. How long does one take? Well, they're hard to make. Yeah, they're carved and everything. I take you down to my shop and you can have a quick look. Sure. But it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. It takes a lot to make an instrument, but Bob had figured out how to do it quickly. You know, like on the sides of a guitar, you put this trim around the top edge. It's called binding. You put the binding on it. Most people clamp it in a in a, a vice and they take a, a, a stainless steel scraper that they put an edge on and they scrape the binding, which can take a couple of hours to do it. And he would say, not Bob. He would take a worn belt on a really cheap... Um, Taiwanese made um, belt sander that's laced flat, like a six by 48 belt sander. And he just put the guitar right on the belt sander and go, <laughs> turn the body around. And honestly, it honestly took him a minute. What it took most people two hours to do. And he, and it was perfect. You know, he would estimate, uh, you know, three sixteenths of an inch. And he would take a chisel and chisel it down and you'd measure it. It was exactly three sixteenths of an inch. Wow. He was an incredible, really talented guitar maker and a lovely guy. Really amazing person who would share anything he knew. But then I started going. So that was 92. I came back and built a shop in my basement and I was a firefighter at the time, but I had been a machinist and got a ticket as a machinist. So I had all those machining skills from the past and really interested in guitars. You know, I'd been sort of buying and selling guitars for years up to that point. So I just started making them. And, um, uh, then every second year I went to Pennsylvania to this association of string instrument artisan symposium, they put them on and guitar makers are incredible. They want to share their information. Every year you go, somebody comes up with a new idea to do something that's very difficult. They find an easy way. They want to show everybody. It's not a secret, you know, all the old Italian violin makers would; they die with their secrets, you know. Right. It's the opposite in the guitar. I'm going this June again. Mm. It's every two years. Yeah. I went two years ago, and, uh, and yeah, I just love it. I I, I love it. so. Yeah, I'm I'm working on some guitars right now. Right.
0: I've known a number of uh, instrument makers uh, in the past from. Uh, I can't call them Dobro's because Dobro's the, the trade name. Resophonic uh, Guitars. Yeah, rezophonic Guitars. There was a fellow out in Sundry who was building those.
1: Oh, was that Al Ocher? Uh,
0: no. Um, Julian. Oh, I know who he is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember his last name either.
0: I forget it. I worked with him. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I broke one of his fancy Japanese saws by accident. ooh Sorry, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> those Japanese saws. <laughs> <laughs> um... And then uh, Jake Peters. Yeah. Know we know Jake. Jake, of course. Sure, he it plays was... banjo and everything. Yeah, yeah. And does really great inlay. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And another really talented banjo player
1: oh, based yeah. in Alberta.
0: Super talented. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been something that's sort of been really sort of close by and in, in proximity to me.
1: Oh, um, yeah. Well, you must
0: have an interest in it. I sure do. And as a carpenter and finishing carpenter, cabinet maker, oh, yeah. you know, I'm so comfortable with woodworking tools, but... The just the thought of taking that step to try and build an instrument—it's just like, oh, oh, it's terrifying.
1: Yeah. I was—I was kind of terrified at the beginning too. Yeah, I, I can certainly get that. I mean, there's 320 steps in making an acoustic guitar. Yeah. it's a lot of, and every one of them, every one of them—if you screw it up, you got to start from zero again. Right. You know, it's really, you know, it's like making super fine furniture that not only has to look amazing, it has to sound amazing, and it has to play amazing. Mm. All that has to come together yeah and and so it's but you know i think being a machinist you work to a thousandth of an inch if you take your hair and you split it in half that's a thousandth of an inch right so if you work to that fine tolerance you're the kind of person who's a fuss pot and if you're a fuss pot then you're looking for fussy things to do yeah so guitar making for me is the perfect um uh combination of that, that fussiness and everything. But I love it at the end when you finish something Aww. and you hold it in your hand and you go, Oh my God, I made this. And then people are making music on it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's incredible. And you make them for other people. Oh yeah. Yeah. How many guitars do you, or have you made? Oh, you know, it's, I wish I would have kept track. I didn't even really take pictures of all the stuff I've made. Hmm. Yeah. I've been at it for a long time off and on though, since the nineties. But then I took a break when my kids were young, you know, for about 13 years, I didn't make anything. Yeah. And then my daughter was in the Walder school and she's in grade eight and she wanted to do a grade eight project, which you have to do, you know, over the whole year, you find a mentor and they help you. And she couldn't find anyone to do anything. And I still had all my wood and I didn't have any power tools, but I had all my hand tools and everything and all the wood. So I said to Ella, I said, if you want to make a guitar, she was 13 at the time We can do that. And so I bought a bandsaw and she wanted to do it. And I bought a table saw and, um, a Sander and we just went to town, you know, and, but I didn't make it for her. I, we, we made it from lumber, but like big planks, we resawed them into eighth of an inch for the sides and everything, Mm. but I showed Ella what to do. And then videotaped her doing it because she had to prove that she made the guitar. Right. But then once I did that, I hadn't made a guitar for 13 years. Once I did that, I realized how much I missed it. Mm. And started doing it again. And we built uh, an addition on the back of this house. It's downstairs. And that's uh, we added a shop. And then we took the outside shop and turned that into sort of the machine shop. So downstairs is the hand shop and outside is the machine shop.
0: Right. Yeah, I can't wait to check it out. Let's go check it out. And that seems to be the most appropriate time to end Segment 1 here of my interview with Craig Korth. I do look forward to bringing you Segment 2 at some point in the future and sitting down with Craig again, talking a lot more about instruments. I'll share more of our conversation from in the shops, checking out all of his tools and the materials and stories that go along with those, and also getting a chance to listen to some of his uh, amazing instruments that he uses on a regular basis. So please watch for Part 2 with Craig Korth, coming up very soon in a future episode of The Sound of the Kootenays. The very first ticket giveaway here on the Sound of the Kootenays was announced in our last episode, and we have a winner. Lindsay Thompson uh, entered via the Sound of the Kootenays Facebook page and was successfully drawn out of the hat for a ticket to see Shaky Graves coming up on March the 22nd here in Nelson at the Capitol Theater. Congratulations, Lindsay, and thanks so much to everybody else who entered. And a huge thank you to Paul Henricks, the Caslow Jazz Etc. Festival, and On The Road Productions for sponsoring this giveaway. Stay tuned for more contests and giveaways in future episodes. that as summer turns to fall and fall settles into winter a lot of artists and musicians use the cold winter months where they're stuck inside to work on their creative pursuits and writing and recording new music tends to be an important thing to take care of in these months in preparation for the summer season of course well this is the time of year where that new music starts to see the light of day and that last song that we heard was just such a song. That was by the Hilties, in a brand new release of theirs, that was called Movin' On. They've also just released an animated video for it as well that you can check out on YouTube. I'll include links to that in the show notes. I'd like to round out the last little bit of the show here by saying that the upcoming Kootenai Music Awards are going to be spectacular. In the time that it's taken me to compile this show, the submission date for entries into the Kootenai Music Awards, has come and gone. And all of the entries are together for the categories, as mentioned earlier. And recently, they've also announced the performers who are going to be at the Kootenai Music Awards. And we've already heard from one of them, that being Dawson Rutledge. And another one that we can expect to hear from is Cam Penner. From his recently released album, At War With Reason, this is a song called Poor You.
6: Ain't got a knife in me courage hiding from me I've gotta fight like a road I know I've been down a thousand times I spend most of the season at war reason watch watch my fears take flight oh you It was four in the morning when I poured through the door and the snow on the floor Long nights in the cold, and all long and narrow I fell into the bed with nothing to hold but you for you Early in the morning, like the afternoon, I wake up alone again, awake without you. All I ever wanted, right before my eyes, took me just a while, and then I realized, I realized. Quit holding your heart out.
0: And that slow fade on the vocals is the recorded version of it, not something that I'm doing technically here in the production of this podcast. But I really like all of the sounds and textures that Cam Penner and his cohort, John Wood, put together on their recordings. And this is a further evolution of that sound. I think it sounds great. So if you have a chance to find that album or go see Cam and John perform sometime, I definitely recommend it. And again, Cam will be performing at the Kootenai Music Awards coming up on March the 23rd. And that brings to a close another episode of the sound of the kootenays so great to have you here listening thank you so much for tuning in thank you to craig korth for the time that we spent having our little conversation there at his kitchen table i'd also like to wish a good luck to all of the kootenay music award nominees and also to the searchlight top 100 artists in the next episode i plan to bring you some highlights from the kmas See what goes down there And we'll give you a list of the winners Of course we'll play some more music from that as well And I think we'll get into The festival lineup announcements In the next episode as well I know the Caslow Jazz Etc Festival Has already announced its lineup To uh, some great excitement And anticipation Some names on there that I think everybody Will be very excited to see At the Caslow Bay uh, Park there And we'll check in with uh, other festivals that are announcing their lineups. I see that CannaFest down in Grand Forks has also announced most of their lineup. And we'll see what comes up from other festivals such as Shambhala, Wapiti, and Starbelly Jam. Of course, that's not all of the festivals that will be happening across the Kootenays. And as we learn more, I'll be glad to share it with you. Speaking of learning more, I must admit, I saw a post from the Unity Festival, which is usually held on the beach in Slocan City. And this year, there will not be a Unity Festival, unfortunately. I know a lot of people really like going to that venue and seeing the music uh, and enjoying some time in that community. But unfortunately, this year, there will be no Unity. We do hope to see them come back again in the future. And... And let you know all about it here on The Sound of the Kootenays. So, in the meantime, I bid you adieu. I thank you very much. And uh, please come and visit me on the Facebook page and send me a message and let me know what you think of the show. Take good care, everybody,
5: and stay tuned.